Okay, it's time for hour number two. We appreciate you staying around for hour number two or joining us. Just come on in. You can help us crank it up for the second hour. Uh, A couple of things that I wanted to make you aware of before we move back into news stories, even things going on in South Carolina, because this is a big thing that's going on in South Carolina. Uh, It's called Vision 24, the National Conservative Forum, and it's going to be March 18th. It's coming up a week from this Saturday, March the 18th down in Charleston, uh, half-day conference, and listen to this lineup. I mean, I think this is an excellent lineup of speakers. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is going to be there. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, former governor of Arkansas, Asa Asa Hutchinson, uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, Ambassador Nikki Haley is going to be there, and so is Senator Tim Scott. So we've got seven confirmed speakers. We still have invitations out to Ron DeSantis, um, to uh, pr- uh, former President Trump. We, we just There's a possibility. I mean, it could be a last-minute thing. You know, the people that manage their schedules, uh, they don't make commitments a long time in advance usually. I mean, they, especially President Trump. So it, is it possible that he could still come? I, I don't think it, the door has been closed, but right now he's not confirmed. I just told you who the confirmed speakers are. And it's Tulsi Gabbard, Lindsey Graham, Asha Hutchinson, John Kennedy, the senator, Marsha Blackburn, Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott. And if you'd like to get tickets and information, go to palmettafamily.org. That's palmettafamily. Just spell it out. P-A-L-M-E-T-T-O family.org, all lowercase. And it'll take you to the website. And the first thing you'll see is a list of the speakers who have been invited and those who've confirmed. And you'll be able to, to scroll down and you'll see a red bar that says purchase your tickets here. So if you can come to Charleston on March the 18th, it, it'd be worth your day to hear all of these speakers. Obviously, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are the keynotes. They, they're going to be the ones that a lot of people are going to come to hear. Most Nikki Haley's already a candidate for president. Uh, for the Republican nomination for 2024, and it's very likely that Tim Scott is going to get in as well. All right, let's let's uh, shift over and talk about some things that are happening in South Carolina. Um, first of all, of course, we're still a state that is an abortion destination state. I didn't think I would ever uh, say that about South Carolina. I've always thought that when Roe versus Wade was overturned, South Carolina would be one of the first states to limit abortion, to limit it all the way back to conception. Um, but we haven't been able to do that. In fact, we we where we are right now, in case you haven't been paying attention to the debate, the Senate passed uh, a revised edition of the heartbeat bill, which was struck down by the South Carolina Supreme Court It was called unconstitutional because of a woman's right to privacy that apparently exists in the South Carolina Constitution where it doesn't exist in the U.S. Constitution. And I admit the wording in South Carolina's Constitution is stronger toward personal privacy because that phrase is actually in um, Section 2, Article, Article 2, Section 10. But 
we've talked about all of this, the fact that that was put in before Roe versus Wade, that it had to do with concerns about uh, the FBI and their activity um, when uh, under J. Edgar Hoover when people were worried about illegal search and seizure and making sure that there was probable cause before any kind of law enforcement could arrest you or uh, come after you. And so that personal privacy was in that context in the South Carolina Constitution. But we still don't have a pro-life bill. Well, we, we have two, one passed by the Senate and one passed by the House. Uh, the House version is in H3774, and it would protect life beginning at conception, and it's sitting over the, in the Senate, and pretty much the wisdom is right now that there's not going to be um, any effort in the Senate to pass it. And the human life protect the uh, um, six-week ban, the heartbeat bill that the Senate passed is sitting over in the House, and there's really not going to be in any effort to pass that. So what we're trying to do as one message, uh, our conservative grassroots group, and of course, South Carolina Baptist Convention, I represent the Office of Public Policy, and I'm also chairman of the board for Palmetto Family, so I kind of represent both groups in one message. We're having a press conference on Tuesday, March 14th. That's a week from today, and it's going to be from noon until 1, and it's going to be by... Um, one our one message partners we've all agreed that we're going to promote this and try to get people to come and it's pro-life women primarily they're going to be speaking in support of h3774 um, and of course i'm going to be one of the ones that's going to lead prayer that day uh, along with um, the patriarchal parochial vicar of saint joseph catholic church um, is is also going to be there uh, to lead prayer. So we're, we're going to be asking people to come. If you can come, particularly women, this is going to be led by women who are making a statement here about the fact that they want to see abortion stopped in South Carolina, that they want H3774 to pass. You know, the, the, the idea is right now there are three women in the Senate that are pushing back against 3774. Um, you know, you have Senator Katrina Sheely, um, Senator Sandy Sin, and Senator Penry Gustafson are they, two of those at least, voted for the heartbeat bill, but they refu- have, have not been given the opportunity yet to vote for 3774. But the last time, this summer, when that bill came over from the House, which is very similar, um, those those women joined a filibuster that was led by Republicans that allowed that bill to die and not to pass. So, and right now, 3774 is not even being brought up in the Senate. So the purpose of the press conference, again, is to try to put pressure on the Senate. And, and when I say put pressure, I'm just saying we're asking them we're asking them to please to show them that there's a lot of support to get that bill up for a vote. Bring the bill to the floor. It's in medical affairs right now. We don't need to have a subcommittee hearing. There's been hearings and hearings on this. There have been a 1,000 people plus that have weighed in in public testimony about the merits or 
the fact that they're opposed to this bill. So we just need to get it out of medical affairs and get it over to the Senate floor and get a vote. And that's what this press conference is about. A week from today, 12 noon in the lobby of the State House, it'll be between the House and Senate chambers there on the second floor. Uh, I'll be there. I hope you'll join me and one, two, three, four, five, six women who are going to speak about why they're pro-life and they want to see 3774 passed by the Senate. All right. By the way, I was talking about when Congressman Timmons called, I, I just realized I, I kind of left uh, the conversation about Ray Epps. I was trying to make a point about the fact that he was there. And the the thing that's significant about him, it, I mean, it was obvious that he was telling people to go into the Capitol. Um, but when he was called to testify before the January 6th committee, he sent a text to his nephew saying that he orchestrated the riot that was taking place. He claimed that he was in his hotel room, that he had already gone back to his hotel when he sent that text message, and that he sent it from there. Well, video footage shows that at the time the text message was sent, he was still milling around out in front of one of the barricades uh, leading into the Capitol. And he, he was there for maybe 30 or 40 minutes after supposedly he had gone back to his hotel room. So all that means is that, that was, he, didn't, he didn't give truthful testimony. I don't know what his role was. I don't know that he had any significant role. I mean, if, you're, if you look at all the, uh, a lot of people out there writing about this, they accuse him of being the main orchestrator and that he was working for the government and that the government set this up to make conservatives and Trump supporters look bad and on and on and on. Here's what you can say. This is what you can know for sure. Because what I'm trying to do is cut through a lot of this noise and tell you that Ray Epps was in some way associated with the government. He was certainly telling people to go into the Capitol. He's on video doing that. Now, he wasn't at the Capitol at the time, but he was directing people toward the Capitol and encouraging them to go into the Capitol. And then when he said that he was back in his hotel room and he sent a text message to his nephew saying, I orchestrated this. Now, that, that could be just, you know, him trying to be a big deal. I mean, I, but it could have some significance. The question is, how deeply was that investigated? We know that he lied to the January 6th committee when he finally talked to them because the video shows clearly that he was still walking around out in front of one of the barricades, out out near the Capitol, at the Capitol, I should say, um, when at the time and after the time that the text message was sent when he claimed he was back in his hotel room. All right. Um, speaking of governments that lie to their people, it appar- it's apparent that the United States is not the only government that's doing that these days because new leaked messages – show that Britain's former health secretary and other officials discuss scaring the public with news of a new COVID strain in order to encourage better compliance with lockdowns and mandates. Now, they, they didn't feel any remorse about that. They, they thought they were doing the right thing. I mean, we can't get people to adhere to our lockdowns and our mandates, so we just need to scare them. We just need to exaggerate 
the COVID strain, we need to present it in such a way that it makes people afraid. I mean, the last thing you want to hear is conversations between government officials trying to figure out how to scare you. It's scary enough that they would even have these conversations, but the fact that they actually carried some of this stuff out and presented information that was slanted for the purpose of making people take an action, that, that ladies and gentlemen, is why people won't trust the government. There were over 100,000 WhatsApp messages that were shared by British officials. They were discussing ways to spin COVID news in order to ramp up public fear for the purpose of ensuring compliance. For example, one message between Matt Hancock, who's the former health secretary in Great Britain, and a media advisor discussed how to, quote, deploy the announcement of a new coronavirus variant so excuse me, so as to scare the public into changing their behavior. Damon Poole, the media advisor, told Hancock that conservative parliament members were already furious about the prospect of more stringent mandates, and he suggested they could roll pitch with a new strain. Roll pitch. In other words, to roll pitch means you just, you exaggerate, you add things to the information that you're putting out to cause people to be afraid, to make them decide that, you know, well, I better get in line here or something bad's going to happen to me. Hancock agreed, saying the government needed to frighten the pants off everyone so they would comply with lockdowns. Poole agreed with that strategy, saying, yep, that's what will get proper behavioral change. So the government wants you to behave. They want you to behave in such a way that they prescribe. And they don't want you to question it. They just want you to do it. And if it takes lying to you or exaggerating the facts in order to make you physically afraid for your life, then they'll do that if they can get you to comply. And they'll pat themselves on the back and they'll say that, well, you know, yeah, we exaggerated. We weren't honest with the people, but look at the results. We were able to get them to lock down and be compliant and what? Nothing. Because... It's, it's beginning to emerge and has been for quite some time that the lockdowns didn't do anything except maybe delay the widespread nature of the virus, but it certainly didn't stop the virus uh, because all, in fact, you could argue that when the lockdowns ended or people began to violate the lockdowns, the virus spread faster because the, you know people had been cloistered then when they came out, the virus was still active, and a lot of people got sick. Later in January of 2021, Cabinet Secretary, by the way, this information is coming from Morning Wire, which is a uh, subdivision operating under Daily Wire. Later in January 2021, Cabinet Secretary Simon Case said, quote, the fear factor would be vital in stopping the spread of the virus, that came just as the government was initiating more stringent lockdowns nationwide. Now, how do we know this? How do we get this information? We can thank a journalist from Great Britain, Isabel Oakshot, who was actually writing a book with Hancock. Now, remember, Hancock was the former health secretary uh, in Great Britain. So they were writing a book together called The Pandemic Diaries, The Inside Story of Britain's Battle Against COVID. So Hancock gave her access to 
all of his files, and then she leaked this information to the Daily Telegraph. Now, she's been, I mean, she's getting attacked because she leaked the information. And the question is, did she violate some kind of protocol? Was, was, was it wrong for her to leak this information when, uh, you know, in Great Britain, that, you know, that, that's, it's more of an issue if a reporter leaks something. There are standards that they have. But she was saying, look, I know I could be sued. I know this could be problems for me. But I believe that the information that the, the British people need to have, their need for that information is greater than anything that I might face. Let me just ask you to the specifics which Hancock has said by way of response. Did you sign an NDA which pledged not to use these messages? Yes. So you've deliberately broken that? I have, in the public interest. And there could, be, the, there could be legal consequences for you. I think the public interest is overwhelming. Uh, whenever you break a big story which is in the national interest, and I've done a few of them, uh, it can be a rocky road, it can be a bumpy ride. Look, I know that I'm going to get a few knocks over this. I'm prepared to do this because I think that the national interest is so utterly okay. compelling. Okay, I, I would agree with that. I think the national do, – don't you agree? If the British people, if we know for sure, you look at all these text messages flying back and forth, these consultations, and health officials were colluding with press officials to come up with a story to scare people in Great Britain into compliance, I mean, that's the government using its power against its own people. If they can't, they can't trust their own people – to comply with the law, they need to step back and ask the question, why? Why is it that so many citizens are saying they're not going to do this? Could it be that they're concerned about their livelihood going away, their businesses being shut down, their children not being able to go to school? I mean, so many things that a shutdown led to that were all bad. And the people in Great Britain were just like people here in the United States. They were saying, look, we can't do this. We're, you know, th this, this is crazy. We need to give warnings to people that are vulnerable to this virus and encourage them to take measures to protect themselves. But for the vast majority of the population, it was not a risk, at least a, a, a huge risk of death. It's like getting the flu, and I know people will malign me for saying that, but, I mean, at, for most people who were healthy, did not have comorbidities, or were not battling obesity or high blood pressure or diabetes, they, they were, or didn't have immune deficiencies of some type, most adults got sick with COVID and recovered. And so we treated the entire population in the United States and in Great Britain and, in fact, around the world, we treated the entire population as if, as if the mortality rate was 50% or 25% or that we, we had a great number of people who were dying from COVID. And as we discussed earlier, we now know that a lot of people that were listed as dying from COVID should have been classified as dying with COVID because they had other health issues that could have been the cause of death and that COVID was just a contributing factor, not the factor. So bottom line, the American people, the British people, all people, 
They need to be told the truth by their government. They don't need help from the government to scare them into taking an action. They need to be told what action they need to take and then trusted to take that action or not. I mean, it's kind of like mandatory evacuation orders, right? There were people who were told when Mount St. Helens exploded, you've got to get away from this volcano. And they stayed, and they paid with their lives. There are those who, when a hurricane comes through, they're told, you need to evacuate, you need to get out, here's your window, please use this time to get away from the area. A lot of people make the decision to stay. Most people ride out the storm and survive. Some pay with their lives. Some get hurt. Some suffer loss. But the point being this, that the government gives the guidelines, they tell people what they should do, and then people make the decisions about what they will do. And we just didn't approach that nearly enough with that philosophy when it comes to COVID. You know, one of the things that I'm really going to miss when I'm doing the show from my dining room is the bumper music. Um, I love, I just, I really love that as part of the show, but uh, when I do the show for an hour, 7.30 to 8.30, Monday through Friday, doing it live, streaming it live on the new website that will be forthcoming, drtonybeam.com, drtonybeam.com, there's not going to be any need for bumper music because I'm not going to have commercial breaks. So it'll just be um, – the, essentially, this is going to be the format of the show. Um, I'll start cold. I'll say who I am and what we're going to do and mention the stories that we're going to cover. And then there'll be some, uh, a brief, uh, introductory introduction music. And then I'll come right back in and we'll dive into the stories. Um, I'm planning on no more than four in the hour and there'll be, uh, out of those four, there will probably be one that's focused directly on South Carolina. Maybe not every day, but my plan right now is to have the top three national stories and one story out of South Carolina that you need to know about. And I'm still going to be able to do interviews. I can have people call in in advance and record the interview and then play them during the the body of the show from 7.30 to 8.30. So I'm actually going to be trained next week on how to do that. Um, I've already started working with the board some, um, uh, and I've, I've got to get under my fingers exactly how it works. And, uh, as I said earlier, I've seen a mock-up of the website. You're going to really like it, I think. And all of this is happening, of course, because on March 31st, Gary Miller retires after a long, and I'll just say illustrious career with his radio and, um, well-deserved retirement, um, I'll let him tell you about that when he's ready, if he wants to talk about what he's going to be doing. But um, his radio talk, 91.9 and 89.7, these frequencies are going to be used for music, some type of music format, as opposed to the talk format that's on there now. So you're hearing other people. You heard Tony Perkins a while ago talk about how you can listen to Washington Watch. Uh, You're hearing recordings from other folks tell you, okay, here's here's how to follow and I'm, I'm doing my best to tell you I can't give you all the details right now because I'm working on it. You know, it takes time to get these things done. But I do know it's going to be drtonybeam.com, and you'll be able to follow the show for an hour live every morning on Facebook and Rumble, and then you'll also be able to 
uh, download the podcast. You can subscribe to it, as I used to say, for free. It won't cost you anything. And um, you can listen to it at your leisure on your smart device, your tablet, your smartphone, wherever you listen to your podcast. All right. Um, Authorities arrested a staff attorney at the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a left-leaning civil rights group notorious for branding mainstream conservative and Christian nonprofits as hate groups. This attorney was arrested on terrorism charges, with police saying that he took part in a violent riot where agitators threw rocks, Molotov cocktails, and fireworks at police at a training center near Atlanta. You know, we talked about this training center, that Atlanta was building this this big center where they were going to kind of move their police operations and they were going to train all of their police officers, just make it a consolidated location. Um, and a bunch of Antifa showed up and burned the place down. I mean, they... They threw, as we said, they threw Molotov cocktails. They, they uh, threw, fired off fireworks at police officers. They threw rocks. They, I mean, just, you know, rioters. And they've been charged with domestic terrorism, which i I got to tell you, it's about time that these Antifa thugs that think they can just have their way with if they disagree with something are finally going to be charged with something substantial not just given a slap on the wrist and told to not do it anymore uh, in a statement monday evening and and the, the significance here is that the southern Pover- poverty law center i mean they're they're the ones that the government looks to often to decide whether a group is a terrorist organization or not or a hate group and they put if if I'm sure I you know I might be on the list for all I know because I'm a conservative because I talk about the truth and politics and culture that could get me listed as someone who's a hater on the Southern Poverty Law Center um you know I'm sure Christian universities are considered to be hate organizations because we teach preach and create an environment where God's word is respected and put out and believed as the truth. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, it, I mean, that kind of stuff like that just kind of drives them crazy. Um, the Guild condemned every police arrest on Sunday as an example of ongoing state repression and violence against racial and environmental justice protesters. This is the National Lawyer, Lawyers Guild. This guy was a member of, and he was part of the Southern Poverty Law Center. He was a, an attorney for them, and so they're blaming they're blaming the police, calling the police the repressors. The police were trying to maintain order. They were trying to keep a building from being burned down. They were being assaulted with fireworks and rocks, and yet this group comes out and says the police were the oppressors. Folks, these people are crazy. Okay, this is we cannot live in a society. We cannot have a culture. We cannot have a political environment where people are violent and decide to take the law into their own hands and then be treated like some kind of heroes. They're actually being charged as domestic terrorists. If they're guilty, they need to be convicted. And if they're guilty, they need to go to jail. 
According to DeKalb County Jail records, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation on Sunday arrested Thomas Webb Jurgens, describing him as a six-foot male with brown hair and brown eyes. Jurgens faces one charge of domestic terrorism. Tom Jurgens has worked as a staff attorney at the Southern Poverty Law Center since 2021 after he graduated from the University of Georgia School of Law in 2019. Jurgens appears as a member in good standing on the website of the State Bar of Georgia. On March 5, 2023, a group of violent agitators, by the way, this is all coming from Daily Signal today, Ryan Saavedra, March, on March 5, 2023, a group of violent agitators used the cover of a peaceful protest of the proposed Atlanta Public Safety Training Center to conduct a coordinated attack on construction equipment and police officers. They changed into black clothing and entered the construction area and began to throw large rocks, bricks, Molotov cocktails, and fireworks at police. Protesters engaged in cop city demonstrations claiming that the new training center would propagate militarized policing and harm the environment. According to police, the agitators destroyed multiple pieces of construction equipment by fire and vandalism. The illegal actions of the agitators could have resulted in bodily harm, police added. Officers exercised restraint and used non-lethal enforcement to conduct arrest. So I thought they actually—I thought the building had actually been burned down. Apparently, it was just the construction equipment and and cars and things that they set on fire. Um, because this this story doesn't say that the building was destroyed, but that was I mean obviously the intent the intent here was to stop the construction to keep the building from being completed to keep police officers from being able to use it for what so they can be trained to stand up against Antifa thugs like the ones that they had to stand up against at this protest. I mean, it's it, it's really time to round these people up and to make sure that they are put in jail if they are guilty, if, they can, if it can be proven. Uh, there's a picture here of the, the building itself engulfed in flame. I think a lot of it was destroyed by the fire. So um, just, I, I mean, it, it fascinates me and frustrates me at the same time that you can have people who should know better. I mean, legal societies, Southern Poverty Law Center, actually cheering these people on for violent behavior and blaming the police. The police were attacked. That was a totally illegal action by people who had in mind the destruction of this center and to hurt police officers. And that's why they're charged with the, the correct crime this time. This is not, you know, trespassing. This is not um, rioting. This is domestic terrorism because they came as protesters and they misconstrued their mission. They said it was peaceful. They then changed into black clothing and tried to burn the place down along with hurting police officers. They need to be locked up. They need to be tried. And if they're found guilty, they need to be put away. Okay, a couple of things are going to be going on down in Columbia this week uh, that you need to be aware of.
Um, it's likely that sometime this week the Judiciary Committee, full Judiciary Committee in the House, is going to take up this equine advancement bill, which is opening up the door to paramutual betting in South Carolina. And if you're concerned about that, you need to contact your representative. You need, you need to go to, um, to um, scstatehouse.gov and look up your representative and if you don't if you don't know who they are send them an email give them a call whatever it takes let them know that you don't think it's a good idea if you don't think it is a good idea and i i hope you do agree with me that opening up paramutual betting in south carolina is not a way to improve our lives or make the culture better vice doesn't lead to virtue you don't have good things come out of things like gambling that cause addiction, that destroys families, that destroys people's lives. Um, it'd be better just to give money to the equine industry if they're struggling, not set up a whole system where we bring paramutual betting to the table. Another couple of things that are going to be going to be happening, of course, the hate crimes bill, we're trying to get the Bostock language taken out. Bostock describes uh, gender as it, it talks about, or not gender, but sex, the word sex, as meaning um, sexual preference, which includes the LGBTQ agenda, and gender identity, which separates it out. And if that language gets codified into law in South Carolina, it, it, will, it will not stay in the hate crimes um, law alone. It'll be stretched to other laws and used, for example, let's say that somebody goes out and commits a hate crime against a gay person, and then you you have it's a you know the this law only deals with major crimes. Let's say that that person claims that they're a member of a church that teaches that homosexuality is wrong. Now, is that, is that church going to be called into question? If the Bostock language is extended to other statutes in, in South Carolina law, that could happen. I mean, if, if they want to pass a hate crimes bill, cover what a lot of other conservative states have covered in their hate crimes bill. Make it about religion, race, gender, age, those things that— are, are, that should be covered if you're going to have this. I, Again, if you look at ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom has analyzed South Carolina, and we don't need more laws that allow uh, for stiffer penalties if a crime is motivated by hate. It's already open to prosecutors to be able to do that. But just because we don't specifically have a bill that's a hate crime bill, then you know, we feel like we've got to pass one. I think it'd be better if this bill didn't pass. I don't I don't want to see it pass, but if it has to pass, the Bostock language has to come out. Hopefully that's going to be amended on the floor tomorrow if this thing comes up for debate. And then medical marijuana. I mean, we're going to deal with that again. The Senate's going to bring that up, and they're probably going to pass it. And they're going to be people who carry a conservative moniker in the Senate who would tell you that they're conservative to the core. And I actually believe that the ones that would say that are. But they're going to vote for medical marijuana. 
Um, and the argument's going to be this is this bill's going to pass, and the the best we can do is make sure that it stays within the boundaries of of medical and doesn't jump out to become recreational marijuana. And I'm just telling you that it will become recreational marijuana. I, I that that's that's what happens. That's how this thing progresses. Um, that the state they they want to make money. I mean, the, the state's going to want to make money off of this, and they can't, they're not going to make money off of medical marijuana, but they can make money off of recreational marijuana. Although the black market in states like California, where medical, where recreational marijuana is in place, Colorado, uh, you know, instead of paying taxes on marijuana, a lot of people are just running it out of the black market. It's hard to get rid of. So, even the altruistic, supposedly, reasons that you would pass this bill are pretty much non-existent. Um, so I just if you agree with these things that I'm saying, let your voice be heard. I mean, we can't we can't get the House and the Senate to come to um, an agreement on protecting life in South Carolina, but we can pass medical marijuana. We can have paramutual betting. We can have a hate crimes bill that threatens religious liberty if the language is not changed. And, of course, one of the other things that's going to pass, I mean, I don't even know, I mean, you curbside delivery of alcohol and home delivery, I mean, they're just going to make it easy. And I know a lot of people could care less about this, but when you look at South Carolina as one of the top states in the country, unfortunately, for domestic abuse, do you know what fuels all that domestic abuse? Alcohol. I mean, why do we want to pro- proliferate something that is promoted or make it easier to have when the end result is, yes, alcoholism and when people are intoxicated, they're much more likely to commit domestic violence. As well as they get behind a wheel of the car and they go out and they kill innocent people. So what is this push? Why, why do we have to have all these things? Why, why do we want vice, things that are hurtful, to be widely available? I'll never understand that philosophy. Society and culture is held together by the values that we share. And when those values begin to break down and we don't share them anymore, so does the breakdown of society begin. And I don't, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic here. I mean, we're, we're talking about law changes that it's not going to immediately overnight affect you. I mean, you're not going to wake up on the day after any of this stuff if it passes any of it and say, oh, my life has changed forever. No, but over time... You'll see the cultural effects of what happens when people embrace things that are, by nature, destructive. Alcohol, marijuana, gambling. All right. Um, I haven't talked much about CPAC. You know, I used to go to CPAC. Um, If you've listened to this program um, a lot over the last 20 years, you know there was a time period in there when I would go to CPAC every year and set up and broadcast live from there. I've done a lot of interviews. One of my favorites, I mean, I was able to interview Gary Bauer, uh, James Dobson. I had uh, Ed Meese. I think that was one of my favorites. 
Edwin Meese was one of the nicest people that I've ever been around, and he was so gracious to me. But there have been a lot of other interviews along the way, and CPAC has been the largest conservative political uh, meeting in the country, but it's, it's, it's waning because of accusations of the founder of CPAC that there's been sexual misconduct. There's, I mean, just we, we don't know. That, that, that's not confirmed. But it's caused people to think twice about going. I mean, you had Ron DeSantis didn't go to CPAC this year. Trump was there, and he spoke for a long time. Now, he won the CPAC poll. 62% of the people that were there want him to be the Republican nominee. Is that good for Trump? Certainly. Anytime you get that level of support, but most of the people there, and there were over 2,000 people, by the way, who attended CPAC, a couple of media outlets showed empty seats with just a few people sitting there and said, you know, attendance is down, CPAC is becoming irrelevant. Let me tell you something. Um, that That's one of these areas where the media is being disingenuous. I mean, there's always a time at a conference like this that where people are gathering for something that there's just a few people and then the room will eventually fill up. Well, you go in and take a picture at a certain point and then try to make the point that nobody's there when they have over 2000 people. That's how many filled out the, the survey. Now Trump won overwhelmingly, but you have to remember DeSantis wasn't there. Now, the others that were there, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, uh, Mike, many believe Mike Pompeo is going to be a presidential candidate, and he got almost no votes, and the same is true for Nikki Haley. So, I mean, she, she got votes. I can't remember. DeSantis was in second place, and he wasn't there. Uh, I think Haley, I don't think she came in third. I think it was her and Pompeo that were further down the list. All the others were single digits. Yeah. And uh, uh, DeSantis was 22%. And like you said, Trump 62. Right. Now, and Trump came out attack in, in, in full attack mode, of course. And whether this is going to play a, a, a second time, whether his ability to uh, just directly attack the people that are running against him, I don't know. I mean, that remains to be seen. But he's made it clear with his CPAC speech that that's what he intends to do. He's setting himself up as the ultimate outsider, even more than, more so than before. All right, that's all the time we've got for today's edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. Here's hoping that you will tune in again tomorrow at 7 o'clock and we'll do it all over again. Have a great day.